You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious God, we are again so thankful for what you have done for us in sending your Son to die on a cross to atone for our sin, to take it completely out of the way, and to deal with all of our sin, past, present, and future. And then you have made us righteous by giving us the righteousness of your Son so that we might stand before you faultless and blameless, and even on that last day stand before your presence to glorify and honor you for this great gift of salvation and for the the gift of making us part of the bride of Christ, the church. We ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to understand your word today as we read and as we study and think through these things. We pray that you would send your spirit to be our teacher and our guide and inflame our hearts with love for Christ. And may we never leave here unchanged. We ask this in his name. Amen. John chapter 19, we're going to read together verse 31 through the end of the chapter. John 19. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, that he know, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. When we get to the end of uh, the death of Jesus, there is something of a spirit of relief that comes over me um, in preaching this. And, of course, when I read this every year, I get to the part in the Gospels where he, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he, he breathes his last and gives up his spirit into the hands of the Father. There's something of a relief there just because I, as I read this, I get into the details of the crucifixion. And then I, I finally feel relief that it's over, that the suffering is over, that the humiliation is over, that the shame is over. And uh, there is a sense in which I, I kind of come to his death and, and realize that finally all of the humiliation that he has ever experienced is, is over. In the words of Philippians chapter 2, when Paul wrote Philippians 2, he said that Christ um, came and was found in appearance as a man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in Philippians 2 there, Paul takes us from the the glories of heaven when Christ was with the Father and he was uh, being of one substance with the Father and equal to the Father in glory and majesty, and then he emptied himself, laying aside that glory and coming into uh, into history and stepping into our realm, he was found in appearance as a man, as a bondservant, 
And then as if that condescension was not enough, he was willing to suffer the indignities of death. And if the indignities of death was not enough, he was willing to suffer even the indignities of a shameful and humiliating and painful, a horrible, the most unspeakable of all deaths, death by crucifixion. That's the type of self-humiliation, the type of self-condescension that the Lord Jesus did for our sake on the cross. And then when we, as we're going through the Gospels and studying the crucifixion, when he finally gives up his spirit and breathes his last, there is this realization, at least for me and I hope for you, that when we get to that point, he will, we realize that all of his indignities are past. All of the pain is over. The suffering, the shame, it's all over. And from this point forward, from the point of his death forward, he will never again suffer any humiliation or shame at the hands of men. Never again. When he returns, he will return in clouds of glory with his angels and with his saints to establish his kingdom in righteousness. When he returns, he will, he will mete out um, revenge upon his enemies, vindicate his name. He will destroy all earthly powers. He will subject all things to himself. The last enemy that will be destroyed will be death. When he comes back, he will never again suffer shame at the hands of men. All of that is done. And from the point of his death through the the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and now being seated at the right hand of the Father in his future reign in glory here on this earth and all of eternity, never again will he suffer shame at the hands of men. That is a glorious reality. And we have looked at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and even the things that happened to him after he died and how his body was treated. And now we come to a passage of Scripture that deals with the burial of the Lord. The burial of the Lord is mentioned in all four of the Gospels and it is significant. And there are significant reasons why each of the Gospels takes, uh, gives some attention to the details of the Lord's burial. It's significant because, and you'll notice the Gospel writers don't just say, and he died, and then he was buried, and then Sunday morning. They don't skip over that at all. Uh, they give uh, quite a lot of details about the burial proceedings and where he was buried and who buried him and how and why and, and all of that. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. The burial of the Lord is a significant section of Scripture, and we want to take the time to understand why it is significant. Let me give you three things that... Uh, three reasons why the burial of Jesus is significant. First, his burial proves the legitimacy slash historicity of the resurrection accounts. It proves the legitimacy and the historicity of the resurrection accounts. The eyewitness details of his burial vindicate and corroborate the eyewitness details of his resurrection. And it's significant for that reason. The burial of Jesus is also significant because the burial is connected to his death and his resurrection in terms of its gospel significance, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was dead, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You'll notice how Paul doesn't just say that He, was, he died and then He rose again, but that He died and He was buried and He rose again. There's something significant about the Lord Jesus being buried and put into a tomb out of which He rose, just as you and I likely, barring the Lord's return, will die and we will be put into the ground in some way, either in the form of ashes or in the form of a corpse in a coffin, we will be put into the ground as well. So the, the burial of the Lord is significant because it's connected even to the other details of the gospel which are significant. A third reason that it is significant is because it proves, the, the time and attention that was given to burying the Lord proves that none of those who were close to him expected the resurrection to happen. If they had anticipated the resurrection, you know what they would have done? They would have said, hey, let's put him on a table somewhere because on Sunday morning he's going to rise from the dead just like he said he would. The fact that they went through all of the time and attention to bury him and then intended to complete that job on Sunday morning, 
The fact that they did that is evidence that all of those who were close to him, of all of those who were close to him, none of them expected a resurrection. That was the furthest thing from their minds. It took all of them by surprise. There was no one who suggested that they shouldn't properly bury him. In fact, in the way that they buried him and all the things that happened, it looked as if they were expecting to do this for the long haul. They did not expect him to come back to life. So that's why the burial of the Lord is significant. Uh, J.C. Ryle calls, calls this funeral that we're about to study in John chapter 19 the most important funeral that ever took place in this world. The most important funeral that ever took place in this world. And it is. Within the last couple of months, we have seen two people pass away whose lives were of national significance. Uh, a couple months ago, we saw, I don't even know if it was a full couple months ago, we saw the, the death of a sitting Supreme Court justice of national significance, national headlines. When that happened, I got a notification on my phone. Fox News was kind enough to send on out and to let me know. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw a former first lady pass away. Now, both of those deaths are of national significance and significant enough that their funerals were carried live on national television on a multitude of different channels. And millions of people watched it. And we watched as millions of dollars and millions of dollars of airtime were given to planning the details of these ceremonies and, and the elaborate things connected with their burial. Now, for both Justice Scalia and Nancy Reagan, the passing of those two individuals is completely inconsequential compared to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, their resurrections, though millions of dollars were spent and millions of dollars were made, or sorry, the resurrections, did I just say that? Somebody smirked and I'm thankful for the smile. Anytime somebody smiles, it makes me think, I must have said something stupid or wrong, or somebody just got a notification on their phone that somebody died. Not their resurrections, their funerals, in spite of the fact that millions of dollars were spent on their funerals and, and millions of dollars worth of attention was given to their funerals, their funerals are completely insignificant compared to the funeral and the, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, their passing away and their burial is of no more eternal significance and of no more significance than the falling of a leaf off of a tree in autumn. It means nothing compared to the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we are finishing up John chapter 19. We have looked at how the Lord suffered. We have looked at how the Lord died. We looked at the, the sayings that he said from the cross and then how his body was handled after he uh, finally perished and uh, how the spear was thrust into his side and blood and water flowed out and that fulfilled scripture. And now we come to the handling of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after the spear was thrust into his side and his, his death was confirmed, his body was handled with care and concern and compassion in a very dignified and honorable way by those who loved him and uh, some who knew him best. And so that's what we're looking at in John chapter 19. We're going to look at three things. We're going to finish up John 19 today and we're going to observe three things. First, the burial party. That is, who was involved in burying him and why. Second, the burial practice. What was it that they did to prepare his body for burial and why? And third, the burial place. Where did they lay him in the ground in a tomb and why? So the parties involved, the practice of burying him, and then the place where they laid him. John 19. So we're going to be picking it up in verse 38. Verse 38. We're going to notice that John mentions two parties that were part of this burial of the Lord. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39 mentions Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, came bringing spices. And we're going to, um, we're going to each handle each one of these individuals separately. First, the Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. And the, the phrase literally means Joseph from Arimathea. Now, nobody knows where Arimathea was. They would have back then, obviously, but we don't today know where Arimathea was in the land of Judea. 
Some people connect it to uh, Ramathaim Zophim, which was the name of a town where Samuel was born and lived for a period of time. But that is uh, that's not known for certain. Nobody really knows where Arimathea was. But we know that Joseph was from there. And he was from Arimathea, probably born there. But then we find out in John and the other Gospels that Joseph lived in Jerusalem and that Joseph had a tomb in Jerusalem because the tomb in which Jesus was placed was Joseph's tomb, Matthew tells us. So at some point, Joseph, who was born in Arimathea and was known as Joseph from Arimathea, at some point, Joseph moved to Jerusalem and there he lived and planned on dying and planned on being buried because he had a tomb carved out of rock in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Joseph is an interesting character because prior to his arrival at the scene of the crucifixion to get the body of Jesus, there is no mention of Joseph anywhere in any of the four Gospels prior to this. Joseph is mentioned in all four Gospels in connection with the burial of Jesus, but we don't see him anywhere in any of those four Gospels prior to this. He just steps onto the scene suddenly, almost without explanation as to who he is or how he met Jesus or how he became a believer. And interestingly enough, after the burial of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea is never mentioned again. He is not mentioned in any of the resurrection accounts. He is not mentioned in the list of of witnesses to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He is not mentioned in any of the epistles, and he does not appear in the book of Acts anywhere. Prior to this incident, Joseph of Arimathea is absent. We know nothing of him. After this incident, Joseph of Arimathea is not mentioned again. That's kind of odd, given that he was a believer and, and given what he does here for the Lord Jesus. All that we know about Joseph comes from the four Gospels in the brief mention regarding him and his connection with the burial of Jesus. So what do we find out from the Gospels? Well, Matthew tells us that Joseph was a rich man and that he was the owner of this tomb in which they placed Jesus. Now, he had to have been a rich man to afford a tomb like this. Not everybody could afford a tomb that was carved out of rock with a stone that rolled against the front of it that was surrounded by a garden. So apparently Joseph owned this plot of land and he could afford to have a tomb of this kind made. It was, it was in every sense a rich man's tomb. So Joseph was a rich man. Further, we know that he was the owner of the tomb, and we know that he had become at some point a disciple of Jesus, though none of the Gospels tell us when he became a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Mark gives us a few more details. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of the council, meaning that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, that ruling group of Jewish leadership comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes, Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent member of that council. So he was a hobnobber, if you will, with Annas and Caiaphas and Nicodemus and some of the other prominent Jews of the day, probably Gamaliel as well. So Joseph of Arimathea was a kind of elite individual in terms of his connection with the Jewish leadership. Further, Mark tells us that he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, meaning that he was a Messianic Jew. He was somebody who expected that the kingdom of, Christ, uh, the kingdom of God would arrive. And he had obviously believed that Jesus was that Messiah. He was the son of David, the promised Messiah. And he believed upon Jesus and was a follower of Jesus because he was anticipating the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he must have been thrilled when he heard Jesus was riding into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and everybody was singing his praises. He must have thought that this week had finally come. The time of his arrival had come. He was going to establish the kingdom. He was waiting for that kingdom to arrive. Luke says that he was a member of the council. And then Luke adds that he was a good and righteous man. And then Luke gives this detail, that Joseph of Arimathea, quote, had not consented to their plan and action, meaning the council. So on the council of the Jews with Annas and Caiaphas there, there was Joseph of Arimathea, and we find out from other scriptures, there were a few other dissenters who did not consent to Caiaphas' plan to put Jesus to death. Joseph was a dissenter from that group. 
And we would assume that Nicodemus was also a man who had not consented to those plans. But then we find out from John here in our passage that he had become a disciple of Jesus or was a disciple of Jesus, being a believer and a follower, but he was one secretly. He was a secret disciple. He was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. Now, John typically does not have pleasant or nice things to say about secret disciples. Back in John chapter 12, listen to what John writes concerning other secret disciples. John says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Of the rulers, many of the rulers believed in Jesus. Who would those rulers be? It would be Joseph of Arimathea, right? And probably Nicodemus. And there would be some other ones. I mean, two people is not many. But there were some others also. And then John says, not only did they believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear of that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So this group of secret disciples, secret believers, they were leaders of the Jews, part of the council, and they had believed upon Jesus and had had believed that he was the Messiah and that he was the son of David and that everything he said about himself was true. But they kept their heads down and they were quiet. Why? Because they wanted the approval of men more than the approval of God. They feared the Jews. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. Do you remember back in John chapter 9, the man born blind? And after he was given his sight, how he came in and he stood before this very council and they began to examine him. And uh, and his parents threw him under the bus because they didn't want to be associated with him or say anything positive about Jesus. Because in doing so, they feared that they themselves would be put out of the synagogue. But the man who had been born blind, he stood in front of this council and they asked him all of these questions. And he said, look, I don't know whether the man is a sinner or not. You tell me. But this I know. I was blind and now I see. I had an encounter with this man and he gave me his sight. And nobody could do this unless he was a man sent from God. Now, it was good theology as far as it went for the man that was born blind. He didn't. And, and then John says that they kicked him out of the synagogue, but not the man's parents, because they wouldn't say anything positive about Jesus. And you had to know that when all of that happened, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus thought to themselves, it's better to keep our heads down and to not say anything. And then once he comes in and he destroys all the kingdoms of the world and sets up his throne and establishes a kingdom of righteousness, then we can speak up. Then we'll say something. Then it will be safe. Now, the, the fear of man and the love of the approval of men more than the approval of God is something that plagues many of us, I think, if not all of us, to some degree or another. And it's something that we all have to fight, is that desire to, to receive other people's approval and, to, and to, to not be shunned by people that we work with or people that we live with or people that we know or our family members. But it is an idol of the heart that must be mortified and brought down and the only, fear, the only cure for the fear of man is to crucify and kill that idol continually and to constantly turn to the God who is bigger than men and bigger than all men and to not fear men. Well, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were men who feared men. They didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And the, the wealthier you are, the more you stand to lose by being associated with Jesus if that's the unpopular thing, right? What did Joseph have? He was a prominent member of the council and he was a wealthy man and he was probably well-respected by his peers. So he had a lot to a lot to lose, both riches and reputation. Joseph of Arimathea stood to lose by being kicked out of the synagogue. And so the more you have to lose, the harder it is to stand up. But there has to come a point in your life where you say, I, I don't care what people think. One of the blessings of growing older is that as I grow older, I start to care less and less what people think about anything, particularly about me. And that's one of the blessings, because then you just say what comes to your mind, which is sometimes good and is sometimes bad. Okay, the second man is Nicodemus. And we learn a little something about Nicodemus here. Uh, John says in verse 39 that we're going to return to Joseph 
uh, fetching the body here in just a moment. John says in verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. We'll deal with the spices here in just a second as well. I just want you to notice that Nicodemus is mentioned here. This is uh, John is the only one that mentions Nicodemus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention Nicodemus being present, but John does. But John is the only one who mentions Nicodemus, period. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention any of, the, any of uh, Nicodemus anywhere else. But John mentions him three times in this gospel, and we've already looked at the other two times that Nicodemus appears. The first one is the one that is mentioned by, by John here, and that is when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came to, came to Jesus by night, kind of as a secret inquirer, as it were, and began to ask Jesus questions about his message and, uh, had, and was sympathetic to Jesus, which may indicate why he came to him by night. It was secret so that nobody would see, probably, and nobody would know about that. That's why Nicodemus came. Uh, the second time that we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 7, when the council was beginning. Uh, they wanted to put Jesus to death, and they made plans to put Jesus to death. And then Nicodemus, in, in, in a council meeting, or sitting around talking with these men about it, Nicodemus spoke up a little bit, and he said in John chapter 7, verse 50 and 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they wanted to put Jesus to death, and Nicodemus said, hold on a second. Doesn't our law require that we at least give a man a fair hearing before we execute him? Which was what they would afford to anybody else. But they had already planned to put Jesus to death. Nicodemus spoke up and just asked that they follow the law in doing so. And what did the council do? They mocked him. You're not also from Galilee, are you? That was a way of just disparaging him and, and kind of making a snide remark to make him shut up. That's what they did. So we, Nicodemus starts out as a secret inquirer, and next he's kind of an advocate for justice. The Lord speaks up and at least, uh, at least offers a, a, a way of doing this in a, in a reasonable or fair fashion, but he couldn't even, wasn't even heard for doing that. And then the next time we see Nicodemus, he's coming right out of the woodwork here, doing something that required a lot of courage. Now we may, you may be tempted to look down on upon Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus for keeping their heads down and keeping quiet about their commitment or belief in Jesus up until this point. But listen, what they did here required a lot of courage. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark says that Joseph gathered up courage and went in and asked for the body of Joseph, uh, Jesus. That required courage. Because that whole council had just agreed to put him to death. And then for you to come out of the woodwork, and, and they didn't have any idea what your belief was or, or how you felt about Jesus, all of a sudden for him to kind of come out into the, into the light, as it were, and request the body of Jesus, showed that he was not consenting to killing Jesus, and further, that he wanted to pay to Jesus the honor of at least a decent burial. And Joseph of Arimathea requested the body of Jesus from Pilate because it would have required special permission from Pilate to receive the body of an executed criminal. It was not Rome's practice to hand over the bodies of their crucifixion victims to their family members or to their friends in order to be given or afforded a proper burial. Rome's practice was that if somebody was crucified for treason or executed for the high crime of treason, that their body was put into a common grave, not given a decent burial. They weren't allowed to be handed over to, the, to friends and to family members. And instead, their bodies were thrown into a common grave and then covered with lime. So why is it that Joseph... Uh, so Joseph knew that he would require special permission from Pilate. Why is it that Pilate consented to this? Why is it that Pilate decided to go against what Rome normally did and give permission for the body to be given over to Joseph of Arimathea? Why would Pilate do that? Because Pilate knew that Jesus was not guilty of what he was accused of. Remember, Pilate's hand had been forced. Pilate didn't want to murder Jesus. He knew he was an innocent man and publicly and privately declared that on more than one occasion. So Pilate knew 
that he was not guilty of the crime of high treason against Rome. He knew that though they called him the king of the Jews, that he was no threat to Rome or to Caesar, and that he had put to death an innocent man. So Pilate would have had no problem at all handing over the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. And so Joseph of Arimathea took it, and it says that Nicodemus then came and brought the spices. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about what the purpose of that was. Uh, Presumably, uh, when Joseph of Arimathea arrived there to... Uh, when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus discussed the burial of Jesus, presumably Joseph agreed to go get the body from Pilate. This is how I think it would have cashed out. And Nicodemus would have agreed to go get the spices required for burial because they were under some time constraints in burying Jesus. Uh, Pilate was surprised that Jesus was dead already. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark remarks that Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. That's Mark's account of it. So when Joseph came in to ask for the body of Jesus, Pilate was somewhat shocked that he was dead already. Now, I started wondering early in the week, why would Pilate be shocked that Jesus was dead already when Pilate had given the order to break the legs so that he would die quicker? So why was he shocked that he was dead already? And I think that the the solution to that kind of dilemma is this, that Joseph of Arimathea was somewhere near the cross when Jesus died. He saw this and realized that Jesus was dead. He went to Pilate on his way into town, into Jerusalem, to Pilate to request the body to buy the burial cloth, according to Matthew. He bought the cloth in the marketplace and uh, to request the body from Pilate. And during that period of time, the Jews were also at Pilate's door requesting that they break the legs so that the criminals would expire quicker and they could get the bodies off of the cross. Pilate sent the soldiers out with that order to go break the legs. And then Joseph of Arimathea shows up and says, he's dead. Can I have the body? And Pilate was shocked. Well, hold on a second, Pilate would have said. I don't know if he used those words exactly, but we need to confirm that he is actually dead. So Pilate sent a centurion out to double check to make sure that Jesus of Nazareth was actually dead, that the job was done. And then certifying that the job was done, he would have handed permission over to Joseph to take the body. That's probably the way that it cashed out. Now, there are two other witnesses to the burial of Jesus. We mentioned Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus. There were two others. Um, All three of the gospel writers, the other gospel writers, mention Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses. I think Luke says the two Marys were there. Matthew says the two Marys were there. Uh, Those are the two women. And it says that they observed it from a distance. They weren't involved in the preparation of the body for burial, but they watched from a distance opposite the tomb. Not only one gospel writer says where he was laid, that is the specific tomb, but one of the gospel writers, I think it's Luke, says they observed how he was laid. That is where in the tomb that they placed the body. So they watched all of this. So we have a number of eyewitnesses. So those are the parties that are involved in the burial of the Lord. Now let's look at the burial practice itself. The burial practice. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now don't forget that according to Old Testament law, to handle a dead body made you ceremonially unclean for a period of time. It didn't make you a sinner. It wasn't sinful to handle a dead body, but it did make you ceremonially unclean, which meant that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who both handled the body of the Lord in preparing it for burial, would have been rendered or made ceremonially unclean and then been unable to celebrate any of the Passover, the Feast of the Festivals of that whole week. But these two men were willing to do this in order to pay this honor to the Lord Jesus. And and while we are thinking that these two men were cowards for not speaking up for Jesus, remember that now when the heat is really on, these two men came out of the woodwork, stepped out into the light, as it were, and were willing to do something that the rest of the disciples were not willing to do. Because John is the only one who was with the Lord at the cross, as far as we know. All of the rest of the disciples have gone away. And 
And, and they're not even interested, it seems, in the body, but Joseph, Arimathea, and Nicodemus were. So they were willing to do something the disciples weren't willing to do. And this would have rendered them ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't have been able to participate in any of the high holy days, the feast, or the festivals, or the Sabbath, or anything that was going on. So what is it that John means when he says that they took the body, verse 40, they took the body and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. I did quite a lot of research this last week on what the burial custom of the Jews was. There are a few things that we know, but quite a few things that we actually don't know. I'll give to you what it is that we do know. When John says that they treated or handled the body of Jesus as is the burial custom of the Jews, John does not mean that they followed all of the burial customs of the Jews for the body of Jesus in preparing him for burial. He cannot mean that because they did not have time to do this. That would have taken hours, and they didn't have hours. So they did not... When John speaks of the burial custom of the Jews, he is talking about the spices that Nicodemus brought. Nicodemus brought the spices and they placed the spices around Jesus because it was the burial custom of the Jews to use the spices. But John doesn't mean that they went through all of the customs of preparing the body for burial. They didn't do that. We know that they didn't do that for two reasons. Number one, because the women came back on Sunday morning with the spices and the oils to anoint the body of Jesus. And they were doing that because the job of preparing him for burial had not been finished. On Friday evening, Joseph and Nicodemus did what they, the bare essentials basically in preparing the body and getting it into the tomb before sunset. But there was much more that needed to be done. And the women were coming back with the spices and oils to anoint the body and to finish the job. Luke chapter 24 verse 1 says that and Mark 16 verse 1 uh, both make mention of that. Second, we know that the Joseph and Nicodemus were under time constraints and all four gospel writers mention this time constraint. Matthew says the evening had come. Mark says it was already evening. Luke says the Sabbath was about to begin. And John, down in verse 42, says that they selected this tomb because it was nearby. They are under constraints in all that they are doing. So they didn't have time to go through all of the burial customs of the Jews regarding the body of Jesus. But they did do the absolute bare necessity of what was needed to bury him. Now, what was the Jewish burial customs? Typically, Jews would take a body that had uh, the body of somebody who had died in, in, in the event of one who had been um, had suffered him and crucified and wounded as Jesus had. They would take that body and they would wash it thoroughly. They would wash it thoroughly in preparing it for burial. Then in all of the wounds, they would take the spices and the ointments and the oils and they would put those into the wounds in order to slow down decay. And the burial custom of the Jew was different than most Eastern cultures of the time. Most Eastern cultures embalmed their dead or burned their dead, but they didn't do what the Jews did, which was to bury the dead with spices. The Egyptians, for instance, embalmed their dead, and the embalming process was intended to uh, mitigate the stench of decay and decomposition. They would also, the Egyptians would, remove all of the major organs out of the body, and they would soak them in, in, a, in a liquid separate, also intended to mitigate the smell of the decomposition and decay. So that's what the Egyptians did, but the Jews didn't do that. The Jews left the body intact. They didn't remove major organs. They left the body fully intact, and they would bury it because the Jews had a theology of resurrection. Because they had a theology of resurrection, they honored the body and how they handled the body, and they treated it with dignity. They didn't just throw it in a scrap heap, uh, typically, or uh, burn their dead because they had a theology of resurrection. So they would wash the body and prepare it for burial. Then they would uh, anoint the, the wounds and the, the body with oils and aloes and ointments and spices, and they would bury people typically with large quantities of spices. And burying them with spices did what the embalming victims did, which was to mitigate the stench of decay. And in a hot, 
dry environment like um, like Israel lived in, uh, you can, well, I won't even ask you to imagine what it would be like, but you can imagine what that would be like. And so that was the purpose of the spices. So after washing the body, they would typically then clothe the body in some sort of a burial garment, uh, a robe or some such. And then they would bind the body using uh, strips of linen cloth. And here's how they would do it. They would take the hands and fold them in front like this, and they would bind the hands together. They would take the feet and do something similar. They would put the toes together, bind the feet together so that they were sitting upright. And then they would typically take and and wrap a cloth around the head this way, underneath the jaw, to keep the jaw closed. And the point of all of that was to keep the body in a position so that when rigor mortis set in after a period of time, the body would not be uh, frozen or stiffened in an unseemly posture or uh, in a stance of any kind like that. So it would just to keep the body presentable and easy to handle and to deal with. Another thing that they would do is they would wrap up, uh, fold up a cloth and underneath the head, of the of the buried person, they would wrap the cloth this way to keep the head looking straight. So they would lay it on its back so that the head would be looking straight up. And it kind of served the same purpose as the pillows that you get for flying on airplanes. It keeps your head up while you're trying to sleep on an airplane. It sort of served the same purpose. And the idea was to keep the body stiff and straight and folded and neat and presentable um, so that when rigor mortis set in, again, you didn't have something that was unsightly. After doing that, sometimes they would take then the body and they would wrap it in strips of linen. And they would wrap in within the strips of linen, layer by layer, they would wrap in the ointments and the spices and all of that. And again, the purpose of that was to mitigate the scent. In the case of Jesus, they didn't have time to wash the body. They didn't have time to fully wrap the body. We know that they didn't fully wrap the body in the strips of linen because if they had, the women would not have been coming back to do that because that's what they would have been coming back to do. That's why they brought the ointments back. They weren't going to unwrap that whole body and undo everything that they did. If Joseph and Nicodemus had got to the point of wrapping fully the body of Jesus, then they would have been done. That would have been all it was. But they didn't get to that point because they did the bare necessities, and that is the bare necessities of burying a body in Jewish custom. Now, what's interesting is how the Jews, or sorry, how the Synoptic Gospels speak of the burial cloth of, of Jesus. And this brings up what is seemingly a contradiction. And I've tried to do this before in raising these contradictions and then answering them so that you're aware of them. Matthew says this concerning the burial cloth. Matthew says they took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Mark says Joseph bought a linen cloth and wrapped him in the linen cloth. Luke says they wrapped it, the, the body, in a linen cloth. John says they wrapped the body in linen wrappings. And you notice the difference? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say what? A cloth, singular. John says it was linen wrappings, plural. Now, is that a problem? An issue for you? What is John referring to? We put all the gospel accounts together and we have exactly what I just described to you. Individual strips of cloth that were used to wrap and bind parts of the body to make it presentable, as well as the head and keep it in place. And then you have a single linen cloth, which Joseph bought sometime during that day when he knew that he was going to get the body of Jesus. Joseph bought the cloth and brought it, and they wrapped the body in a cloth. So it is both linen wrappings used for some purposes and a singular linen cloth. So that's what they did. Now let's look at the burial place. So that's the practice, the burial practice. Now let's look at the place. Verse 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, John is the only gospel writer who indicates to us that in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. The fact that there was a garden in the place of the crucifixion tells us 
that this place of crucifixion was not the common, typical place where they crucified criminals. They didn't typically crucify criminals in gardens. Uh, it was near the city. It was outside the city. It was by a, a main road coming into the city, so people would be able to see it. So it was in a, in a public and very accessible place. But it wouldn't have been in the place where they typically crucified criminals because it, the, then it wouldn't have been a garden, right? You don't, you don't typically think of the place of execution being a garden. So this was a garden tomb, meaning in a garden where Jesus was crucified, meaning it was a very unique place for them to crucify people. Why is it that they chose a garden to crucify Jesus? Why did the Romans do that? We don't know why they did it, but I know why God did it. I know why God chose that. In the providence of God, he knew that Jesus being crucified in a garden would be near a tomb. And he knew that this tomb was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And though nobody else in the land of Israel knew that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer, God knew that Joseph of Arimathea was a believer. And God knew that Joseph would take care of the body. And that's why he was crucified very near the tomb. In fact, we can deduce that the body of Jesus was probably not even taken out of the garden. It was prepared for burial right on site and put into the tomb. That's the time constraint that they were under. They did not have time to take the body back to Joseph's house, have a cup of tea, prepare the body for burial, bring it back out to the garden tomb and place it in the tomb. They probably didn't even take the body out of the garden. In the very place where he was crucified, they prepared the body for burial in a very quick fashion, not washing the body, not wrapping the body up with... with uh, with the spices in between each layer, taking the body, binding it as they could, putting it inside the burial cloth, putting it in the tomb, packing and folding around it all of the spices, and then closing the tomb door as quickly as they could. So it was in a tomb. And and, and Mark, no, it's John and I think Luke. I'm going to get it wrong when I try and do stuff from memory. John and I think Luke mentioned that it was a new tomb in which nobody had been laid. Now that's a significant historical detail for two reasons. For two reasons. That means... First, because on the on the morning of the resurrection, if nobody else has ever been put in this tomb, and there were no other bodies in this tomb, and no skeletons anywhere in this tomb, it was brand new, fresh, Jesus, the first one laid in there. For that reason, on the morning of the resurrection, when the tomb was empty, there could be no confusion as to whether there was a body in the tomb or not. Think about the confusion that would have been raised in the discussion and in the preaching of the apostles if Jesus had been placed in a tomb with two or three other bodies. And then on resurrection morning, they say, Jesus is risen from the dead. And people show up at the tomb and they look inside. They say, well, I see bodies in there. Yeah, but Jesus is risen. Well, how do you know that one of those bodies is in his body? Did you check? I'm not going to go in and touch a dead body. I'm not interested in that. It stinks inside the tomb. I'm not interested in any of that. Well, how do you know then that one of those bodies is not his body? Well, the disciples say that it wasn't his body. Imagine the confusion. No, on resurrection morning, when the tomb was empty, the tomb was empty. An empty tomb is an empty tomb. There could be no confusion regarding any discussion or any preaching as to whether or not the body that was put in that tomb, the very first body, was indeed the body that was raised from the dead. And a second significant thing about it being an an empty tomb in which nobody else had ever been laid has to do with something that could have come up regarding the superstition of the Jews if there was another body in there. Nobody could claim that the reason that Jesus rose from the dead was because he had touched or been in a tomb with somebody else's body that did the miracle. Do you remember back in 2 Kings chapter 13, there's the story of a man who is killed and his body is thrown into a grave and he falls on the bones of Elisha and he is raised from the dead because he fell on the bones of Elisha. Do you remember that story? 2 Kings chapter 13. Well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, nobody could ever say, well, it was because he was in the tomb with Uncle Levi. And Uncle Levi's bones must have some sort of magical power. So we need to make sure that we bury people in the tomb with Uncle Levi's bones. Because remember what Elisha did? And now Uncle Levi's bones are making people rise from the dead? Nobody could ever claim that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, rose because of an association with somebody else's body. No, no. 
he would rise from the dead on his own, all alone, in a tomb with nobody else in it. There could be no doubting what had happened that resurrection morning. So, John says in verse 42, Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And again, they are under time constraints when they, when they laid him in the tomb. They chose that tomb. It was nearby. It happened, happened in the providence of God to be Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They would have put him inside the tomb on a, on a rock slab that they had carved out of the rock for that purpose. It wasn't just a hole in the side of a, of a mountain or a hillside. It would have had a, a rock slab in there for laying, laying bodies on it while they decomposed. Uh, and it could have been used for more than one body over the course of a period of time. They could have put multiple people in there. And then after the body decomposed, they would have moved them to different parts in the tomb. This tomb was carved out of rock, the Gospels say. It would have been a, 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 an entryway small enough that you would have to duck. The normal-sized person would have to duck on their way in there. It would have been very dark inside of there. Um, not very big inside of there, but big enough full, for a full-length body to lie down on the stone tablet, on the stone table. They would have had in front of the tomb a groove right in front of the door where a large uh, stone rock would have been rolled. It would have been a stone that was probably several, six to eight, maybe ten inches uh, thick. And that round rock would have been uh, sitting down inside of that groove right in front of the door. And then it would be up, rolled up out of the way. And that groove, the grooves were usually at a slight incline so that once a stopper was removed, that rock would roll very easily into place. Uh, pulling it out of place would be a bit difficult. It wasn't a huge incline, but just enough to make it easy to put into place, but difficult to roll out of the place. And that's why the women, when they showed up, said, who's going to roll away the stone for us? And who's going to be there? Are going to get the guards to do it? Or who's going to do it? Roll away the stone for us. So that's what the rock and the, the rock tomb uh, would have looked like and, and how it would have been set up. Before we leave this passage of the burial of Jesus, let me mention a few coincidences. And, and I'm not one who believes in coincidences. I prefer the term providences. But sometimes, um, sometimes we can use the term coincidence to refer to something we observe that we shouldn't make too much out of, but it's just interesting to note. And here's a couple of them. The first Adam plunged his entire human race into sin and destruction in a garden. The second Adam delivered his people from sin and death in a garden. Not only did he pay the price for sin in the garden, that's crucifixion, but he rose over death in the garden. That's an interesting coincidence. Another interesting detail is that, and J.C. Ryle points this out, and he says maybe this is no more than just a coincidence, but it is interesting. The first hands to handle the body of the Lord Jesus when he was born into this world were likely the hands of a man named Joseph. The last hands to handle the body of the Lord Jesus Christ after he died were the hands of a man named Joseph. Interesting, isn't it? There are two times in our Lord's life when we could say that he was rich. And only two times. In his birth, when the Magi showed up and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the rest of his life, he lived in poverty. And at the end of his life, in his death, when he was handled by a rich man and buried in a rich man's tomb. This was a dignity and an honor that was afforded to few people to be buried like this. But the Lord Jesus was. And being buried in a rich man's tomb, remember, remember that that in itself was a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death. How was he with the, uh, with the wicked in his death? He was with the wicked in his death in the sense that he was crucified between two thieves. And he was identified with transgressors because he bore our sin. But he was also with a rich man in his death in that he was handled by a rich man, prepared for burial by a rich man, and he was laid to death in a rich man's tomb. And that fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Now, as we leave this passage, I want to give to you two things. First, I want you to notice how many people vindicated, confirmed the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were four soldiers who stood at the base of the cross 
and observed him die. They watched him die. One of them thrust a spear into his side. Joseph of Arimathea observed that he was dead, and he went to Pilate, who sent a centurion, who is the fifth individual, out to the side of the cross. The centurion certified that he was death and brought that certification back to Pilate, who certified that he was death and handed the body over to Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea handled the body. Nicodemus handled the body. And two women watched and observed everything that happened. That means that from the point of his death to the time of him being laid in that tomb, there were no fewer than ten separate individual persons who all observed this, eyewitnesses to the fact that he was a dead man. If he had only passed out, if he had only swooned and lost consciousness, if he were in any way remotely alive, one of those ten persons would have observed that. One of those ten persons would have noticed that. Particularly those who handled the body. Everybody who observed the body of Jesus and everybody who handled the body of Jesus all agreed that Jesus of Nazareth was dead when they took him off of that Roman cross. His death was certified by no less than ten individual people. And that will come into play next week when we talk about, in the weeks following, when we talk about the reality and the historicity of the resurrection. On Saturday, Matthew says there's something else that happened. Let me read to you what we read at the beginning of our service. Matthew 27. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. On the next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the Jews and the chief priests showed up again on Pilate's door. How, how delighted he must have been to see them again, right? After all of his interactions with them, they showed up again. And they said, we don't want the disciples to come and to steal the body. So we're asking you to set a guard at the tomb and to seal it. And Pilate gave them authorization to have some Roman soldiers and a guard and to go set watch over the tomb. And this they did on, on Saturday. And they not only put uh, stationed uh, Roman guards at the tomb, but they put the official Roman seal across the entrance of the tomb, which meant that the, the stone having been rolled into place and the soldiers would have certified that the body was in there and that it was the body of Jesus of Nazareth. The stone having been rolled into place, they would have stretched a rope or a band or a ribbon across the front of that tomb and they would have sealed it on both sides with large globs of wax, and they would have put the official stamp of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, they would have stamped that into the wax so that everybody could see it. And that seal across the tomb carried the full weight and authority of the Roman Empire. If you rolled away that stone, if you broke that seal and opened that tomb without any authorization, you were subject to death. No questions asked. All of the authority of Rome was behind that seal. So the Jewish religious leaders got what they wanted, which was a guard at the tomb and the tomb sealed with a Roman seal. Now, unbeknownst to them, they did it so that the disciples wouldn't come and steal the body. But unbeknownst to them, God had a different plan. Because in doing this, this was not their intention, but in doing this, those Jewish men who had put the Lord Jesus to death guaranteed that come Sunday morning, there would be no other possible explanation for an empty tomb and a missing body other than one the Scripture gives, and that that He is risen. Let's pray. Our God, you are a God of details and a God, a God of providences, and we thank you for what you do each and every day in working out your eternal redemptive plan. And we see in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, your perfect plan in action. You planned all of these details, and by your providence, you directed all things so that they would fulfill Scripture. 
and so that you would be glorified through the resurrection of your son. Thank you again for his death for us, and thank you most certainly for his resurrection on our behalf as well. We stand before you, grateful, redeemed sinners, in the presence of you and in the presence of Christ our King. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.